Hello, and welcome to the weekly podcast of C2 Church in Columbia, Missouri. We sing about the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If you're with us on Good Friday, we talked about the core belief, the ridiculous belief that Jesus died in our place. And in just a moment, we're going to receive communion together. Our ushers are serving you now. We believe in an open communion. That means you don't have to be a member of our church, but you do need to be a person who's confessed, confessed faith in Christ and in Christ alone. So as our ushers serve you, ushers, please go ahead and begin serving. Take a piece of bread in the cup. You know, it's in this moment that we, as a believing community, we celebrate the one thing that Jesus told us to do, celebrate his death and his resurrection. And so that's what we do. His brokenness represented in the broken bread, which is really about our brokenness and our suffering. And his shed blood represented by the juice. That he, through his blood, his sacrifice of his life, brought forgiveness once and for all for you and for me. So as we sing, would you contemplate that, reflect on that, worship Jesus for that. And in just a second, I'll come back and we'll take communion together. Because on that same night after the meal, he took the cup, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant written in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. It was because of the shed blood of Jesus that no more sacrifices would ever have to be made. I would not have to do anything except to believe in the power of his shed blood to forgive me and give me new life. So Jesus, we thank you for your shed blood, which is for us, for our sins. Let's drink of the cup together. Let's continue to worship, church. Lift your voices. You can clap for that. This we believe, you know, this day, what it represents is about a ridiculous belief. We have this ridiculous belief that Jesus died and rose again from the dead for you and for me. That's about as ridiculous as you can get. And yet, we believe. We believe so much that we gather every Sunday morning as a community of faith to declare that central belief, that we believe Jesus rose from the dead. Has it been a good morning so far? That's right. Man, I love uh, having our kids' ministry out here. Weren't they awesome this morning? They had a lot of energy. it's, It's interesting to watch, you know, we're such a multicultural church, different cultures within our church. I was telling my friend Stanley, he's got to come worship next to me. My friend Stanley's from Ghana. He has no idea I'm saying this about him, but uh, he and his wife are worshiping this morning. They are into it. They are into it. And then some of my Midwestern friends are, yeah, he's risen for sure. You betcha. That's okay. Worship how you want. We've examined over the last few weeks in this series called Ridiculous, which we will conclude next week. First, we, we looked at the ridiculous claim that Jesus is the Son of God. It's not just a claim that we attribute to him, but his very words. He claimed to be the son of God. Next, we examined the fact that he made the ridiculous claim, and scripture supports the claim that 
He lived the perfect life. That he did miracles. And then on Good Friday, he died in my place, paying my debt, taking my cross. Today we look at the ridiculous claim that Jesus rose, rose from the dead. And these claims are just that. They're ridiculous. I, I'll be the first to admit they make no sense. Not only is it highly improbable, but most likely impossible that someone would rise from the dead. Western culture especially is science-based believing. You believe because science has proved it. So someone rising from the dead of their own power is not only highly improbable, but most likely impossible. And yet, Jesus, betrayed, beaten, tortured, crucified, died and buried. But three days later, three days later, we've got an empty tomb. We've got to deal with the ridiculous reality of that empty tomb. It's only ridiculous if it's not true. But because it's true, I would claim that it's still ridiculous. It's ridiculously true. There's a lot of true things that seem ridiculous, but happen. When we launched the series, I showed you that, that, that full-court basketball shot. Totally improbable that it would go in, but it went in. It was a ridiculous basketball shot. So many things that are ridiculous, but they do and can happen. You know, when you, you get together with groups of people, maybe you don't know them, maybe it's for like work or school, and you, you go through that silly exercise of, say your name and your favorite cereal, or, or tell us one fact about yourself that no one would guess. And so you, you try to think of something silly or ridiculous, something that people wouldn't know about you. So I'm going to make a, a full confession this morning, be completely transparent with you, vulnerable. When I was in high school, I was a junior in high school, and uh, I was invited and then ended up participating in the Mr. Minnesota Teen Competition. <laughs> it is not a pageant. It is a scholarship program. <laughs> and, and all you think it's about good looks and swimsuits? <laughs> I didn't win. Why you got to laugh at that? <laughs> you could have been like, oh, man, I totally thought you would. It's totally ridiculous, but it's true. There's lots of ridiculous things that are true. And think about Easter. It's ridiculous. It's far more ridiculous than Christmas, right? Now, I would argue Christmas is ridiculous in another way. I mean, the, the way that we celebrate it and the, and the, the commercialism has gone to, to great heights, right? But Easter, not so much. I mean, you don't put up an Easter tree, Right? You don't wear your Easter ugly sweater, right? There's just things about Easter that, that we, we don't do. It's less commercialized. Why is that? Father Martin, in, in, in an article he wrote in the Wall Street Journal, it's called The Challenge of Easter. I think he, he brings about a good point. And the fact that Christmas's claims are pretty easy to, to get along with. A baby born in manger, I mean, there's really nothing life-transforming about that. Babies are born all the time. People even claim that they're, that baby's special. So we can have a baby born, and there's, there's no big, big deal about it. But 
Father Martin, in this article I, I read this week while studying, thought made a good point. Easter changes everything. He says this, whether you're a believer or not, there is no way to ignore the radical claim of the resurrection, which Easter stands for. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you can go on living your life while perhaps admiring Jesus the man, appreciating his example and even putting into practice some of his teachings. At the same time, you can set aside those teachings that you disagree with or that make you uncomfortable. Say, forgiving your enemies, praying for your persecutors, living simply or helping the poor. You can set them aside because he's just another teacher. A great one to be sure, but just one of many. If you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, however, everything changes. In that case, you cannot simply set aside any of his teachings. But the Christmas story is largely non-threatening to non-believers. Jesus in the manger, surrounded by Mary and Joseph and the adoring shepherds, is easy to take. As the Gospels of Matthew and Luke recount, there is no little danger involved for Mary and Joseph, but for the most part, it can be accepted as a charming story. Even non-believers might appreciate the birth of a great teacher. But contrast that with Easter. The Easter story is both appalling and astonishing. The craven betrayal of Jesus by one of his closest followers, the triple denial of his best friend, and the gruesome crucifixion and the brutal end to his earthly life. And then, of course, there is the stunning turnaround three days later. Easter is not easy to digest as Christmas. It is harder to tame. Anyone can be born, but not everyone can rise from the dead. Easter is ridiculous. We can't commercialize something that has such great claims to it. And so we must do something with it. Tim Keller, the author, wrote this. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teachings, but whether or not he rose from the dead. We have to do something with this ridiculous claim. Even the Apostle Paul, who wrote a great deal of the New Testament, who himself has a ridiculous claim in terms of his transformation from Saul, the persecutor of this newly found church, a zealot Jew killing Christians, has a ridiculous experience and encounter with the living Christ that transforms him, renames him from Saul to Paul. He becomes the, becomes the great herald of this new gospel, the good news of Jesus. And he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about this resurrection. He writes in verse 12 of chapter 15, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. It's ridiculous. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Verse 19, he would conclude by saying this, we are of all people most to be pitied. We make these ridiculous claims as Christians that 
Jesus Christ rose from the dead, the scriptures make the same claim. Jesus himself would make that claim. Hey, today, would you do me a favor as we dive into this? Would you pull out your, your electronic device, your iPad, iPod, iPhone, uh, I, whatever you have, Android? I don't want to discriminate against Android. I want you to blow up social media this morning by first checking in on Facebook. Let everybody know you're at C2 Church this morning. And then put out this, maybe on your feed, something like this. The resurrection isn't something to acknowledge. It's someone to experience. Easter is ridiculous. I mean, you've got to admit, Easter and its claims are ridiculous. That someone who died rose from the dead of their own power? Let's look at the ridiculous claims of Jesus again, and this time regarding the resurrection. First, Jesus made the ridiculous claim that he had the authority over death. In fact, Scripture records that he actually raised several people from the dead, including his best friend Lazarus. Jesus had done miracles, he'd healed the sick, but he wasn't there for Lazarus in his time of need, or so it seemed. Lazarus, as he finds out, has been dead now four days. Mary and Martha are mourning, Jesus shows up, presumably for the funeral. And in Jewish culture, four days, you're very dead. Two days, they believe the spirit still was around, you know, not quite dead. Mostly dead, but not quite dead. Three days, you're all dead. Four days, forget about it. The only thing you can do is go through the clothes and look for loose change. <laughs> Lazarus is all dead, completely dead. And Jesus rolls onto the scene. He says, this is for the glory of God. And he makes this bold claim, John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? We'll get to that question at the end. But that claim, I am the resurrection and the life. Listen to that wording. I am the resurrection and the life. He's not claiming that he can simply raise people from the dead. He's not even calling for them to change their life. He simply says, I am the resurrection and the life. Properly translated, that last part of his claim, I am the life, is really, I am life. That's a pretty bold claim. I don't just raise people from the dead. I am the resurrection. I raise them to life in me, he's saying. This is the essential claim of Jesus, beyond his miracles, beyond his good teachings and his moral life. He makes a bold statement that he alone is the center of all life. And in him alone is resurrection. That's a pretty bold claim. You can't simply just say, oh, Jesus was a good teacher. The dude was completely mad unless his claims are true. He claimed to have authority over death and the ability to give life, real, true, abundant life. In fact, he, he's so bold that he makes these claims to his disciples. And maybe this was the most ridiculous claim that he makes, is that he would actually rise from the dead. Several times throughout all the Gospels, he makes this declaration. That he would suffer, and then he would die. And then he would rise again. In one example in the, in the Gospels, he, he tells his disciples, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. 
And Peter, right? Peter, of, of, of all his followers, says, no, Jesus, you're not going to die. I'm not going to let you suffer. I can't let that happen. You're going to screw everything up. I've got this, Jesus. Just trust me. Right? So here's Peter rebuking Jesus for saying he would have to suffer and die. Peter had this idea that Jesus' kingdom and his, his ruler, his rulership, would be as the king of Israel, kicking out the Romans, be military, it would be political. And Peter was going to make sure Jesus didn't get it wrong. Jesus needs our help sometimes, right? So here's Peter saying this, and Jesus, Jesus rebukes him and says, no, get behind me, Satan. It's pretty serious when Jesus calls you Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan, for you don't have the will of the Father at heart. Jesus knew that he was coming to suffer and to die. It was for this mission that he declared in John 12, 27 and 28. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus made the, these predictions about his death and resurrection. In John 2, he would say, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. In Mark 8, 31, he says that the Son of Man, claiming right there to be the Son of God, must suffer many things and be killed and after three days rise again. In John 10, he states, I have the authority to lay down my life and the authority to take it up again. Unequivocally proclaiming that he will die and rise again. He's either mad and a liar and crazy or he really is who he says he is and has the authority over death. And so we follow this story from the, the night of the Passover supper where they take communion together like we did earlier this morning, that we would celebrate the death and the resurrection of Christ. And from that moment, that last supper, he proceeds to the garden in prayer. He's betrayed, he's arrested. He goes through a kind of a rigged trial. Then he's beaten tortured he's crucified on a cross and then he dies and then he's put in a tomb and a stone is rolled in front of it and three days later three days later he rose again that's the ridiculous claim that we make Something happened. Something happened beyond that death, beyond the grave. He rose from the dead. Easter means that nothing is impossible for God. It means that life triumphs over death. It means that Jesus is who he says he is. It means the ridiculous is true. As a friend of mine would say on the basketball court, it ain't bragging if you can do it. Jesus wasn't bragging. He was going to do it. And on Easter morning, he rose from the dead. He didn't have to trash talk. He rose from the dead. Something happened to those disciples, too. Something happened. You've got to understand the nature of what was going on in that moment that Jesus is betrayed in the garden, arrested, and taken before Caiaphas and then ultimately Pontius Pilate, the Roman ruler. 
the disciples scattered. They were depressed, disorganized, and distraught. There's no way they would conjure up a story simply to say that their, their leader had risen from the dead. I believe that the best, the best defense against this is the fact that they were scared, that they had run. In fact, Peter denied him three times, as Scripture records. I don't know him. Many of his disciples fled. They didn't even go to the cross. They watched from a distance, except for the women and one of his followers. Find it ironic that the women didn't flee. <laughs> but the disciples, for them to pull off this kind of shenanigan, I mean, some people might say, well, it was a group hallucination. They all, they all thought they saw the risen Christ, right? But even modern science would debunk that. Group hallucinations are, are impossible. Even hallucinations on an individual level are rare. But then to convince someone into hallucination, of which then they would go and give their life for, not likely. You can't convince someone into a a hallucination. And why would these scaredy-cat disciples, why would they mess with the Roman guards? I think we all think of the Roman guards who were guarding Jesus' tomb, right? They roll that huge, heavy stone in front of the tomb so no one could steal the body and make ridiculous claims about Jesus? I think we think of those Roman guards as like Paul Blart, the mall cop. Right? Right? They, they got plastic handcuffs and, you know, they don't have any firearms so they turn their hip thusly. If you've seen the movie. They're not, you know, nothing to be scared of, but let me maybe open your eyes a little bit to what was going on there. These were Roman legionnaires. These were the special ops guys positioned in front of the tomb. These guys, when given an order, were going to fulfill it. They weren't going to let these 12 fishermen and disciples mess with the tomb. It was on pain of their death if they did. And it was on pain of the disciples' death if they messed with a tomb. It was against Roman law, punishable by death, to mess with a tomb. That they would do that? I mean, they didn't even want to be near Jesus when he was arrested. Why would they go and do this? And then they would take the body and hide it so that then they could proclaim in the very place that Jesus did miracles, taught, where he grew up, they would start proclaiming that he's risen? That doesn't make sense. Now, the, the Romans and the Jews, they didn't even argue with the empty tomb. They didn't make any claim that Jesus was still in the tomb. They agreed with the empty tomb. They had to, in fact, invent cover stories for it. They admitted that the tomb was empty. So what do you do with that claim? And i got to tell you, if I was going to write a legendary story like this, a ridiculous story that would build into legend and myth 2,000 years ago, There's a couple things I wouldn't have done. One, I wouldn't have included useless facts and embarrassing stories about myself, right? I mean, who needs to know that you participated in the Mr. Minnesota team competition? You know, you don't want to put that in there. And yet the Gospels are full of, of nearly useless facts and really embarrassing stories about the disciples, the guys who wrote this, about their disbelief and their doubt and their disobedience. I would just clean all that up and be like, look at me. I was the first to believe. I knew it from the first time I saw him. 
right? I mean, I would make myself look better, for sure. But then the other thing I would do is I would make sure that I included the part where I saw Jesus rise from the dead. So it was camped out, like Best Buy on Black Friday. I don't even know if they had that. I mean, they had Black Friday, like Good Friday, but not Black Friday like Thanksgiving. You know what I mean. I would make sure that I wrote it in such a way that I said I saw it. Me and a thousand people were all right there waiting for Jesus to come out because we knew it was going to happen because he said it. And then the rock just exploded or something like that. But we have no such record of anyone seeing it happen. We simply have the word of a few women, which again, in that day, you wouldn't build a story based on the testimony of women because in that day, that testimony was not considered valid. I'm so sorry, ladies, if it was me. So there's a lot of things that just don't line up of how you write a really good legend or myth so it would grow over time. And yet the only proof we have is changed lives and a changed world. So much so that these men and women would give their life. Some, some might say, well, they were brainwashed. It's hard to be brainwashed into something that you know isn't true. You experienced it. And so for a lie that you invented, would you give your life for that lie? Not likely. But we see that something happened because of what happened on that morning with Jesus rising from the dead, the changed lives of the disciples. We see a world changed. Look back through history before the life of Jesus, the violence and the oppression that was perpetuated throughout the ages of every culture. There wasn't a teaching like it. Even the Jews themselves would perpetuate the violence. Well, it says an eye for an eye. But Jesus rolls on the scene and says, no. If someone slaps you on one side of the face, give them the other one to slap as well. Love your enemies. Pray for those who hurt you. What? This is the teaching that would go on to change the world, so much so that Christians would go on to start the first hospitals, the first missions, the first uh, feeding programs. They would lift up the oppressed and the downtrodden. They would give and meet the needs of the poor. They would meet the needs of those who were sick and hurting on a scale like this world had never seen before. People would give their lives for this cause, and not by force or coercion. If you take the other major world religion in this world, Islam, it starts with the promise of power and wealth from Muhammad himself. And when that doesn't work, it's by threat, intimidation, violence, militance, and murder, even as we see today. But you don't see that in Christianity. Now, you can see people who try to do things in the name of Christ and misuse that name, applying it to their own personal agendas and missions. But for the most part, Christianity hasn't spread because of military force. It's spread because of love and grace and generosity. Because I believe this. 
something happens when you believe the ridiculous claim that Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus didn't rise from the dead, die on a cross and, and rise from that grave simply to make you a better person. He didn't die just to make bad people good. He rose again so that he could give dead people life. And life abundantly, life like we'd never known to move us from what we think is reality into the real reality of the realm that God lives in. Something happened when those people experienced that claim of resurrection. When Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, they began to believe it. They experienced it. Again, the resurrection isn't something to be acknowledged. It's someone to be experienced. Easter is ridiculous, but the New Testament challenges you, dares you to take that evidence and encounter Jesus and experience him. Jesus isn't someone we entertain. He's someone we encounter. And he's changed lives. I look around this room and I see the lives changed. You've received healing from Jesus. Your addiction has been broken. You have a new life. That doesn't happen in any other religion except when we look to the person of Jesus Christ and his claim that not only did he die, but he rose again to give you and to give me a new life. That's ridiculous because I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. And yet to all who believe, who call upon the name of Jesus, he gave the right to become his children. And that is what we are. That's a ridiculous claim. And so what do we do with that this morning? What do you do with the ridiculous claim that Jesus will give you new life? We have to do something. What does it mean? And I close with this. It means this. Jesus is who he claims he is. That means he did what he said he did. The scripture is true. And that he has authority over life and death. He really is the son of God. Someone who rises from the dead has power. Power like this world has never seen. It also means that he's alive today. I can experience him. I can encounter him. But there's something personal about this. It's not about simply gathering one day a week for good stories and a pat on the back. It's the fact that I can personally and intimately encounter a living God. Not to follow rules, but to enter into relationship. And the final thing it means this morning for you and for me is we must make a decision. You must decide about who Jesus is. He's either a madman and a liar and all of his followers completely deceived or he really is God. And he really does change lives. Father Martin, who I spoke of earlier, closed with this about the challenge of Easter. He says, Jesus, because a person who rises from the dead, who demonstrates his power over death and who has definitely, definitively proven his divine authority needs to be listened to, we must respond. 
It demands a response because, in short, he closes, the resurrection makes a claim on you. Not just a general claim, it makes a claim, a ridiculous claim on you. We must respond. So I leave you with that this morning. Jesus' claim, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though they die, yet shall they live. If they live, they will never die. Do you believe? Not just acknowledge. Not just go, yeah, pastor, that's good. I don't want to go to that other place. It's not about a location. It's about a person. Jesus Christ. In this holy moment, church, would you close your eyes and bow your heads? Because Easter isn't Easter unless you make a decision. That's what we gather about every Sunday morning, is to proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the only reason we gather. That's the reason you invited your friends and family here today, hopefully. It wasn't so they could sit next to you and be bored like you. You're not bored, I understand. But it's because you believe in this power. It's changed you. It's had an effect on you. And you must make a decision this morning. In just a second, I'm going to invite those of you who've never invited Christ into your life to proclaim faith and believing in Him and in Him alone for forgiveness of sins and salvation. I'm going to invite you to raise your hand. And when you raise your hand, we're going to pray with you. We're not going to point you out or embarrass you. But in that moment, the church will pray together with you, recognizing the perfect life of Jesus that meets all the requirements that the law requires, that his perfect life and his sacrificial death was for you and for me, that he rose again to give us new life. The old life is gone, the new one has come. Addictions are broken. Healing comes. Restoration is possible. Purpose received. If that's you this morning, and you want to step into faith with Christ this morning, would you raise your hand high, and then you can put it right back down. Anyone at all? Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Anybody else? In church, we're going to pray with all those who raised their hand this morning. We're going to reconfirm, recommit ourselves to that same prayer many of us prayed weeks ago or years ago. Would you repeat after me, church, with all those who raised their hands out loud? Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to live the perfect life, to die in my place, to rise again, to give me new life. I accept the gift that you offer me, forgiveness and freedom. Thank you for my new life. Help me to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, can we give a round of applause to all those who made that decision this morning? Hey, if you made that decision this morning, I'd love for you to stop by our Connection Center where our volunteers would love to put some material in your hand, help you uh, with the decision that you make as you become part of the community. The great thing about the prayer you pray 
is it does something in the spiritual. I have some guests joining me on stage, by the way. It does something in the spiritual. When you pray that prayer, you, Jesus hears it. He takes it seriously, and he begins to do that new work in you. And the second thing is you enter into new community. Brothers and sisters in Christ, in this room and all around the world, you'll never walk alone. Let us help you. So stop by the Connection Center today. Well, I've got some guests on stage with me to, to conclude the service. These are some of our El Salvador missionaries. They've either gone before or are going this year, and so they're going to do a song and, and a dance for us that they'll end up doing in the streets of El Salvador for the children that we do as part of our medical and feeding programs as well. Our ushers are going to come as we take our annual Easter offering. Again, something we do every year. Love for you to participate. Our goal this year is $20,000. Don't do the math. Just do your part. I know you're like, well, if I give this and then Darcy and I have committed a certain amount because you know what happens when Christ comes into your life? He changes your nature. Get that. He changes your nature. You're born selfish. You're born as someone who needs to protect and provide for themselves. And yet when Jesus comes in, generosity suddenly is the new nature. Because Christ gave, I can give. I don't have to protect or be selfish. I can give freely and abundantly because I know Christ will meet all of my needs. And so this morning we're going to give. And you know what we're going to do along with the gifts from first service? We're going to gather them together and trust that Jesus will meet every need for the project that we've committed to him. So would you do your part simply this morning? We don't give to be saved. We give because we are saved. Because Jesus gave to us. You guys ready? Step up here. Well, from our family to yours, happy Easter. You know the ridiculous thing, another ridiculous thing I should say? is that the power of Christ that we believe raised him from the dead lives in those who believe. That's what scripture says. It's so ridiculous that we have committed our family to going to El Salvador, that 38 of you have committed to go and not just tell people about the love of Jesus, but serve. That's why I believe the ridiculous claim that Jesus rose from the dead is true, because people are still giving their lives for it. Thank you, church, for leading the way in generosity and showing the love of Jesus, not just to Colombia, but all around the world. Thank you. Happy Easter. Hey, we're so glad you listened in. If you made a decision to follow Christ today or would like more information, please email us at nextsteps at c2church.com or visit us at c2church.com.